It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson. Are you ready to get real, break through, and learn how to make your midlife the best time of your life? Take on those life challenges and turn them into opportunities? Let's rock. Here's Dr. Ellen. Hey, everybody. Dr. Ellen here, the Midlife Whisperer. Thank you so much for joining it. If you're new, a special welcome. I am so excited to welcome you to Rock Your Midlife. And today we're going to be talking about how to eat and flourish, how food can support your emotional well-being. But first, I've got a question for you. Are you an emotional eater? Well, if you answered no, actually all of us are emotional eaters. And I know when you, what you're thinking about. When I think about emotional eating or my clients think about it, we usually think about, you know, having a threesome with Ben and Jerry's, ducking under the cover with Netflix and potato chips. But we're going to really help you to redefine and rethink about what emotional eating is. You know, it's got a lot of negative connotations. But the truth is that we all eat emotionally. And the fascinating thing is that we actually, what we eat impacts our emotions and our emotions impact what we eat. And it's this kind of wonderful uh, circle that you can actually use food to help you boost your overall well-being. And today's guest, Washington Post writer and editor Mary Beth Albright, is going to share her groundbreaking exploration of the way what and how we eat shapes our mental and psychological health. As Mary Beth writes in her new book, which is amazing, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being, food is pleasurable. That's the way it was designed. We feel joy when we eat, whether it's a juicy peach, crusty bread, or chocolate, and especially feel uplifted when we're sharing food and when we're cooking. And you're going to learn how to eat to support your emotional well-being, the role pleasure plays, how to use food to support your gut microbiome. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, we'll tell you all about it. How certain foods help reduce inflammation that can harm your mental health, and how to develop a healthful eating pattern for life. So I was reading um, Mary Beth's amazing book and thinking about my own food journey. This year, I will celebrate being a registered dietitian for 30 years. So I've spent like half my life being a dietitian nutritionist. When I became a dietitian in 1993, emotions were no part of what we talked about. And also we didn't talk about behavior. And I graduated from school, got my master's in nutrition communications, and I was working as a nutrition journalist and also had a, a clinical practice. And I remember knowing how to tell people what to eat, but I had no idea how to help them change their behavior to eat that well way, let alone how to share this amazing new information that's come across in the last 20 or so years about how food can really impact your well-being. It can impact your mind, your health, of course, your spirit. It's such a powerful thing, something that we engage with every single day. It was all about shame and guilt and what's wrong with you. And I'm here to say that we have come so far. And personally, my journey led me to discovering behavioral techniques to help people eat right. So I first I became a coach and then I became a PhD psychologist because I really wanted to help people change their behavior. And I've been so fascinated to see that now we're really diving into how food actually impacts your 
your emotional well-being. I mean, there's such a realm of incredible research that Mary Beth is going to share in a minute. But one of the things that I came across when I, I was writing an article for iHerb on the microbiome, and they've actually found that when you take fecal matter from anxious rodents and you put it in normal rodents, the normal rodents get anxious. So we know that our microbiome actually impacts our mental health. And we also know that there's so many things we can do in terms of what we are consuming, the food that we are eating to support our mental health. And I'm I'm happy to say I have developed a great relationship with food. I actually live on a beautiful island in Lake Champlain. And my fiance, Kenny, is a master gardener. So I've actually had my microbiome tested and it actually is doing really well. I've got a few protozoa that I need to take care of, but overall we have we have positive uh, bacteria and organisms in our gut. We have negative and we have neutral and I have mostly positive and neutral. Um, and it's been so awesome to work on my own microbiome and see how that has impacted my own health um, and my own mental health. It's so interesting too, because um, Kenny, my fiance is an amazing gardener, but don't, don't let him know I told you this, but he sucks at cooking. And I'm an amazing chef myself. I was actually a celebrity chef in the 90s. And, um, you know, his philosophy is nuke it until it's done. So I've had so much fun taking this incredible bounty of produce. And we actually, we make our own sauerkraut. I make, we make kimchi, we make uh, fermented green beans we made this year. I make my own kombucha. So really having such a great time working on my own mental health through the foods that I eat. So let's, let's get right down into it. And again, I encourage you today to kind of put all these ideas about emotional eating aside. I think there's so much negativity around, are you an emotional eater? You know, are you using food to eat when you're stressed, when you're sad? We all do that. And today we're going to really talk about how to kind of turn the conversation around. My guest today is Mary Beth Albright. She is a frequent panel moderator, including for the U.S. State Department and the Smithsonian. And her food judging expertise is sought regularly, including, get this, she ate 2,000 foods in three days to judge the Outstanding New Products Award. Outside of the food world, her service includes serving on multiple boards and co-chairing the National Cathedral Elementary School Scholarship Fund's 40th anniversary. She's raised almost a million dollars. She is also an elected member of Les Dames d'Escoffier, an esteemed group of women in the culinary professions, which counts Julia Child among its alumni. Mary Beth lives in Washington, D.C. with her 10-year-old son, Truman, who wants to know if you want to talk about baseball. I totally get that. My son now is 21, and it's always about sports. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife, Mary Beth. I am thrilled to have you here. Ellen, I'm thrilled to be here. This is so exciting and such an important topic, and I love your your all of your attitudes about food, and I can't wait to get into it with you. Well, thanks. Well, I've come far. You know, we I grew up in a household where we were more scared of fat than dying. Everything was super low fat. And when I became a dietitian, it was all low fat. And we'll get into it. But, you know, fat is such an important component of the diet, both in terms of brain health and also, you know, in terms of satiety and making food taste good and also increasing the absorption of nutrients. But the first question I have for you, why did you write this amazing book, Eat and Flourish? Well, about 15 years ago, I worked at the United States Surgeon General's office, um, and I was sitting down doing work that had nothing to do with food, and this uh, journal article crossed my desk about 
omega-3 fatty acids and how they can reduce rates of aggression in men. And that was the very first time that I had seen a peer-reviewed, um, randomized, controlled journal study that showed that food and mood were deeply related. And this was important to me because my background before that had been, I worked for C. Everett Koop, who used to be Surgeon General, and he was very grounded in science. No matter what, it was you go where the science takes you. And so I thought, hmm, this is really interesting. And in the past 15 years, it, the whole thing has just exploded. The, the, the research and the field that is called nutritional psychiatry or nutritional psychology has really blossomed. And the research is piling up. It's, I mean, you, you, if you look at the book, a lot of the research that I give you is from 2022, 2021, 2020, like all of these, these studies are just coming out as we discover things like, as you mentioned, the gut microbiome. I mean, 20 years ago, when we stated that the human genome was mapped, but they were like, hmm, we're 99.9% .9 the same. What makes us all different? The government got into studying the gut microbiome and they're finding that, it, that our gut microbiome influences so much of who we are, our sleep patterns, our social anxiety, how we metabolize. So um, I just kept going where the research was. And then in 2020 with the pandemic, I had just gotten divorced, um, getting used to my job at the Washington Post in a very busy and very hectic newsroom and a very hectic news cycle in 2020. And so um, this book just uh, I, I brought together all the research from all different um, disciplines, neuroscience and ne something called neurogastronomy about how the brain creates flavor. All these different fields brought it together and the result is the book. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, that's an incredible accomplishment given that you were going through divorce. I mean, talk about rocking your midlife, right? Like working at the Washington Post, going through divorce, writing the book during the pandemic, probably also homeschooling your son. So it's just amazing as an inspiration for women who are listening, who are thinking, gosh, how do you rock your midlife? But you know what you've come out with is amazing because it's so comprehensive, yet so understandable. And it is incredible because you know when I was in school, I don't even think I saw microbiome mentioned once. And we certainly didn't see things like celiac disease and food allergies and the power of food and dietitians didn't get much respect. Now these days we actually have physicians going back to school to learn culinary medicine. So we've done this whole like 180 looking at the fact that, you know what, like Hippocrates said is let food be your medicine. Yes, and the foreword to the book is written by um, a physician at George Washington University who is a specialist in culinary medicine, and they're developing a big program at George Washington about that. And so um, that was really part of it. And I have to say, I'm 50 years old and I just published my first book. So I'm here to tell you, and that, that period of time right before I got divorced and I started at The Post, I was freelance writing um, for several years and being at home with my son and you know, I, I think it's really important when we're talking, because we're talking about emotional well-being, to, to remember that, that all of these great accomplishments, and I'm really proud of the book, come out of a lot of soul-searching, a lot of hard work, and I know that everyone is doing soul-searching and hard work right now, so I fully support that. Yeah, and it's so interesting too to even just start talking about emotions because so often we want the positive emotions, we want joy, we want happiness, we want excitement. But the difficult ones, you write about things like sadness and grief and anger and being mad and all of our emotions are actually information that helps us to rock our lives. So let's dive into, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I, I was so excited because one of the things I love about the question you just asked is that you didn't call them negative emotions. You called them difficult emotions. And so many people, and you know, it's understandable. We all just say things, but um, some people call them negative emotions. And it's hard to think about sadness or anger or fear as not negative. But these are all, as you said, just information. It is our nervous system processing sensory information from the outside world. And it's our nervous system telling us how we feel about it. Sometimes it's because of what we're experiencing in the moment. Sometimes it's because of something we experienced 30 or 40 years ago, and we're filtering it through that experience. But, it, but emotions are always information, and they always need to be listened to. And our different emotions create different biological needs. So for example, when you're really stressed, it's shown that um, people excrete more magnesium in their urine, which, um, is, which means that you need more magnesium to process the stress. And so it's little bits like that, that that I go through in the book, much more focused on food, as we talked about, than I am on supplements or that kind of thing. Yeah, it's also interesting too, when you think about you know an emotion like fear, your cortisol goes up and it has a tremendous effect on both your appetite as well as fat deposition around the midline because you always have to think about this lens of how did we evolve as humans? And we evolved in an environment where there were threats that could kill you. There was that saber-toothed tiger that could leap out and kill you. There was things like famine. And we also were hunters and gatherers. So if you saw that fig tree that was full of fruit, you ate as much as you could potentially eat, you stuffed yourself. And so we still have both these emotions that evolved in, you know, in other animals millions and millions of years ago, as well as this propensity to eat as much as we can when food is available. And it, it always is. So let's, let's dive in and first of all, talk about, let's redefine emotional eating, not that thing that we do because we're stressed and we're sad, this negativity, but in your book, what is emotional eating? And, and also why has it received such a bad rep? Well, what I discovered from the research from the past 15 years is that food and emotions are entwined inextricably. They're, they're like vines. You can't piece them apart. And we can either get to know this connection and make friends with it and learn how to use it to our advantage, or we can deny it and live miserably and, and say, well, I don't want to be an emotional eater anymore. The thing about it is from the research you can see that all eating is emotional eating. And when you eat anything, whether it's a carrot or um, a, an apple or a piece of cake or a steak, your body, there are biological reactions, chemical reactions in your body that affect your emotions. And that happens when we eat absolutely anything. And so it's not, you know, we, we think about emotion, you, you were talking about um, being a nutritionist in the 90s. I mean, we all remember Snackwells, right? And I went, I, I was in college when Snackwells came out. I got to tell you, the, the boxes of Snackwells that came through, <laughs> and it's like, oh, but it's fine. You know, it's fat free. Um, it, but it, but we, we need to remember that how we feel affects what we eat and what we eat affects how we feel. You bring up the example of the evolutionary mismatch, which is something that people kind of throw around now, but it's so true. Exactly what you said, that, that we have so many mechanisms in our bodies to make sure that we don't starve, to make sure that we get enough food. And in a world where you find a fig tree every once in a while, that's great. But in a world where it's like, oh, I want some sweet things. And then you just go down to the 7-Eleven, there is everything imaginable. <laughs> that you could want. I mean, I, I think about how my 
Italian peasant ancestors would react if they walked into a, a modern grocery store. It's like, oh my, fall to your knees, you know, hallelujah, this is amazing. So, um, so I think it's important to remember that, and also what you were saying about um, the fear aspect and the cortisol, when we get afraid, we need, or we used to need, um, a lot of energy to fight something. And that would mean craving sugar, right? Because sugar brings you really, really quick energy. And now sugar brings you quick energy, but you can't tell your boss, you can't fight your boss. You know, you can't just be like, okay, I'm just, now I'm just going to have a smackdown. Now I've got this great, great energy. And it's like, and then you have all this energy built up and all these emotions and nothing, nowhere for it to go. So um, you can really use food to modulate your emotions. All right. So let's get into it. I mean, obviously there, you know, what you eat affects your emotions, all of our neurotransmitters, all all of those chemicals are made of the food that we eat and also our emotions impact the cravings and what we want to eat. So how do we strike a balance? I mean, we don't want to go to this place where, yeah, we're diving down to 7-Eleven and, you know, you talk a lot in the book too about the addictive nature of sugar, that when rodents are fed sugar, it's, it's a lot like cocaine. So how do we start by striking this balance of utilizing food for our emotional physiological well-being without going overboard and just indulging when we have this you know, desire that I I must have that Snickers bar it's three o'clock I'm tired I'm hungry I'm lonely I'm angry I'm mad how do we strike a balance and use food well to support ourselves so the first thing I'll talk about is that is that food cocaine or the sugar cocaine reference it's really important because a lot of that research is done on the gut microbiome, that when you change the, the kind, because everyone's gut microbiome is like a fingerprint, everyone's is different. And um, when, when mice have different bacteria, they will go for sugar over cocaine. Whereas a regular healthy mouse would be like, I'll have some sugar, I'll have some cocaine, why not? Everything's good, right? But you can actually modulate a gut microbiome for, for a mouse that just wants sugar, which is pretty incredible when you think about the addi- addictive nature of cocaine. Um, what, what was your other question? Sorry, that was, I just wanted to get to that. Oh, now that's okay. No, you were talking about that, but let's, let's back up. Let's first talk about, and you have a whole section on the microbiome since we've sort of oh, dove in yeah. there. Let's first of all, talk about what exactly is the microbiome. Okay. So the gut microbiome is the collection of trillions of microbes. That's um, bacteria and fungi and viruses that go through your digestive system. So that live inside of your body. That's all the way from your mouth, all the way to the other end. There's just living things, trillions of them, and they eat and they digest and they secrete substances that affect how you live. So for example, some of the things we know that the gut microbiome influences sleep, social anxiety, um, cravings, uh, how how we how um the how the body metabolizes medication because you're not just metabolizing your human cells your microbial cells are medic are metabolizing any medication you take too, so what we find and the 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 fastest way to change your gut microbiome is through food period hard stop that's what every single researcher says, and so when you don't have enough of these beneficial bacteria in your digestive tract and you're not eating enough beneficial bacteria, say in yogurt or in sauerkraut that you talked about, when you're not ingesting that, um, those microbes don't have good helper, the microbes that live inside of you don't have good helpers to work with. And when you're not eating enough fiber, they don't have enough stuff to eat. 
So they wind up eating your the, the walls of your intestines. And that's why very often when you have some sort of emotional disturbance, it, it will come with some sort of um, digestive issue. Um, one of the one of the great um, studies that was done in mice is that they they exposed mice to early childhood trauma. And that would be putting them in a maze that has no end, or that would be removing them away from their mother. And the mice with early childhood trauma had significantly different gut microbiomes than the mice next to them. And they exhibited the, those anxiety and depression symptoms. But as you talked about, when the microbiome was transferred into the healthy acting mice, the healthy acting mice started exhibiting anxiety and depression. So we don't know a lot about the gut microbiome. That's what's so exciting about it. But we do know how to improve it and how to improve it is through food. Yeah, it's really pretty simple. It's prebiotics and probiotics. So the prebiotics are, as you mentioned, are fiber. And it, it, this all goes back to when I'm every, every new, and anyone is asking me nutrition advice, it's a whole food plant-based diet. So plants, fibers, just the part of plant foods that we don't digest. So fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, seeds, all of that great stuff. What it does is your, those microorganisms actually feed on your gut, uh, the, what you put into your gut. And the other thing is probiotics. You've probably heard a lot about probiotic supplements. Probiotics are the, the actual bacteria themselves are found in, in fermented foods, things like yogurt, sauerkraut, uh, kimchi, kombucha, and eating those foods can actually help to build up the healthy bacteria. Absolutely. And that's that's one thing that it, there's a lot of confusion around because probiotics, people think, oh, well, if I eat them, they'll be inside of my digestive system permanently. And they're not. They're, they're usually transient workers. If you think about your digestive system as a factory, and it's like you've got a whole lot, trillions of specialized workers in there now, you want to give them the best helpers. And the best helpers are in probiotics. And even if they are just there for a few hours while you're digesting, those the, the, the bacteria who live inside of you are going to get stronger and stronger. And of course, what the factory needs is great raw materials. And that's when we what I think of as prebiotics, which is what you what you will feed to your microbes, um, as you said, fiber. <laughs> yeah. And so what are the benefits of having a healthy microbiome on the immune system, on our brain, on our mood, and also on weight? Yeah, well, the, the weight thing is really interesting because all of the studies about um, food and emotional well-being that I refer to, the interesting thing about it, and this is sort of revelatory for someone who has grown up with diet culture, um, is that these things happen, the improvements to emotional well-being happen independent of weight. There doesn't need to be weight loss associated with this change in eating. I mean, you know, there might be, I don't know, but um, but there doesn't need to be weight loss associated with that. And so that's really important. And what they've done with, with the gut microbiome is realize that when you have two twins, one of whom is a, is a lean weight, one of which is a heavier weight, and you transfer the microbiomes, the lean weight twin will start to gain weight and the, and the heavier weight twin will start to lose weight. And so, but we don't, we don't know what the mechanisms are. We don't know why. And right now there are labs around the world who are looking for like the one bacteria to rule them all, right? That you're going to find the one bacteria that causes weight loss. But I just, we're not going to find that in our lifetimes or even in my son's lifetime. Um, but right now, the thing that we know that we can do to help ourselves is food. As you just said, that, you know, in one, with you have one foot in the most ancient wisdom and you have one foot in the most current research, research that is coming out still as we speak. And so 
that is that whole food plant-based diet is exactly what you were saying. And for me, it's very important to have a different why, because for me, the weight loss thing was like not a very compelling why, right? But, but eating for better emotional health, that, that to me is critical. So what is the, the brain gut connection? I know we've got vagus nerve, we've got the microbiome, what's going on in terms of if people are listening and going, okay, I want to feel better emotionally. How, how are the brain and gut connected? The brain and gut are connected through a loop and it's connected in many ways. But when we think about, when we think about neurons, we usually think about the brain and the spinal cord, right? The central nervous system. The thing is, there's a, there's a whole, the gut has its own nervous system with tons of neurons in it. And those neurons connect with the, the, with the neurons in your brain. They're talking to each other all the time. And your gut is saying, I have fat in it. I have sugar in it. I have protein in it. And your brain is perceiving that and deciding when to stop eating. So it, it, in other words, if you're really hungry and you have a Diet Coke, there might be like that flavor in your mouth and you might feel like very temporary satiety but it goes away really fast because what you need is the brain connection. And there are a lot of ways that those connect. As I said, the gut sense, um, there is something called the vagus nerve, which goes from the, the very stem of the brain. It's a bundle of nerves that connect directly to the gut. And, and it's just sending signals all the time back and forth. And so when you look at that connection and you look at the where how emotions are created and the purposes of emotions, it's it's not surprising at all that food and mood are entwined. Um, but what is great is that we now have the science about it. So you can write an actual book that's not just like, I think these are connected, you know, I, I'm very anti-hoo-hoo stuff. You know, we, we want to make sure that there is science and there is significant science here. Yeah, that's what's so amazing about the book is that you lay it all out there. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because one of the primary things we need to stay alive is food. So it would make sense that the, the brain and the gut are interconnected. Just to just to remark on the diet soda reference, what actually happens, the research shows that you actually crave sugar more because your brain's gotten this you know, signal like, oh, something is sweet, but then I don't have the calories from it. And I think there's also this thing that goes on that I see with my clients is that you know, they go to a fast food restaurant and they get that happy super meal and they think, well, I'm going to have the double cheeseburger and fries, but I'm having the Diet Coke. So I think we can do ourselves a lot of disservice by eating those highly processed, chemically laden foods and all of those artificial sweeteners. Yeah, because no matter whatever goes into your gut, it's going to tell your brain what's in there. And if you're tasting sweet and you don't have sugar, your gut's going to be like, hey, I want more sugar to your brain. And you know what your brain's going to do? It's going to pick up more sugar, right? So uh, it, it, to me, it's a very freeing message. It's not like there's something wrong with you. It's this is our biology. And if we understand it, we're going to be able to use it. Amazing information. Well, we are just getting started. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about inflammation and the nutrients you need to take in to support your well-being. And uh, Mary Beth is going to, to share with us her four-week plan, which is going to really help you put this in action. That's what I love about the book. There are amazing recipes. There is a specific plan. So yes, it's all scientifically valid, but it also is a how-to book that's going to get you feeling great emotionally and physiologically you're listening to Rock Your Midlife. We're going to take a little break and we'll see you on the other side. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Midlife can be challenging. 
You may be sandwiched between growing kids and aging parents, dealing with menopause and trying to find work-life balance. Or maybe your life looks good on the outside, but inside you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and wondering how to get your confidence and joy back. You need someone to help you get real, discover who you are and navigate life. Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I'm here to help. I've worked with hundreds of midlife women, went from surviving to thriving at midlife myself, and literally wrote the book on this pivotal time period, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and Make Your Next Chapter Your Best Chapter. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, nutritionist, and board-certified health and wellness coach with 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. I provide nutrition consults, life coaching, and free resources to help you transform your body, your mind, your career, and your relationships. Feeling stuck? I can help you figure out how to live authentically with joy, passion, and purpose. Every Wednesday here on Voice America, live from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I share my passion for making the most of midlife and my expertise on the most pressing midlife issues from changing family relationships, managing stress, and securing enough resources to rediscovering yourself. I also interview experts from around the world to help you navigate your life. For more information, please visit my website, themidlifewhisperer.com, for fabulous resources, including my free gift, 10 Tips to Rock Your Midlife. That's themidlifewhisperer.com. Hope to see you there soon. You are listening to Rock Your Midlife with Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Have a question for Dr. Ellen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Hey, welcome back. Dr. Ellen here, the Midlife Whisperer. I hope that you are learning as much as I am. We are talking with Mary Beth Albright, and she has written a tremendous book called Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. I guarantee it's worth the price of admission. You know, we're talking a lot of science, but she has this incredible ability to break it all down. So it's understandable and it's information laden, but also just really fun with practical uh things that you can do to really make a difference. So before we dive into how we put this all into practice, I'm curious, what are the one or two bits of research that really were like, wow, we talked a little bit about this, you know, fecal transplant. We don't know exactly how you go about doing that, but that to me is like, wow. But what were a couple of the other things that you were just blown away by in terms of the research? Well, there was one uh, um, piece of research that, uh, again, in mice, because it's it's very difficult to do dietary research in humans. There is dietary research in humans. I have that in there. But short of putting a webcam on someone's forehead, you can't you can't know exactly what people are eating, right? Especially in a self-reported way. So a lot of these things are done in in mice and. Um, there was one that um, those the early uh, early childhood trauma that I was talking about. These two mice were then given, or the the mice with early childhood trauma who showed signs of depression and anxiety. Some of them were given um, a probiotic, 
And some of them were given the antidepressant Lexapro, and then they were given stress tests again. And in some of the stress tests, the probiotic worked as well as the antidepressant Lexapro. Now, look, I am not telling anyone to throw away their Lexapro. I benefit from medication every day. I will not throw away my medication. I go to talk therapy. I love it, right? Um, this is a tool in the toolbox. And so to me, that was really striking that you can that you can have really striking results. But um, But also that in the world that we're living in now, which is so much, um, there are so many mental health issues and we are in a loneliness epidemic as well. That's what the current United States Surgeon General says that right now with loneliness, um, it can have a, an effect on health outcomes equal to 10 cigarettes a day. And so we really need to make sure that we are addressing our mental health with every tool that we have and, and not everybody has all those tools, right? Um, but another one is one of my favorite ones was the American Gut Project did a study about how to make your gut microbiome more diverse because the diversity is the strength of any ecosystem um, that you need to have diversity for that ecosystem to work so they can everybody can support each other. And what they found was that people who ate 10 people who ate 30 plants a week, 30 different plants a week, that diversity had greater health outcomes and more diverse microbiomes than people who eat. 10 plants a week. And probably most people are eating 10 plants a week, even if you're, you're a carnivore. I mean, you know, wheat, corn, um, lettuce, tomato, onion, that kind of thing. But when you look at people who eat more diverse uh, diets, you will find um, greater health outcomes. And that's why I'm not a fan of saying like, here are the superfoods, eat blueberries. Because you know what, if you eat blueberries all the time, your gut microbiome isn't going to be useful, right? And, and I understand that the desire to, to have lists of things, but it's just, it's it, all the evidence points towards a healthy eating pattern, not looking to specific superfoods. Yeah. And also you really emphasize pleasure and not being Ooh. perfect and the importance of cooking and eating together that this is fun. Like I love making my sprouts. Like I make five different kinds of sprouts every week. And I love that we still have kale outside, even though it's January, but having fun with it, it's, we've got to like throw away this, all this perfectionism, weight loss BS and focus on, as you said, diversity, eating a whole food plant-based diet, having fun with our food. Let's talk a little before we dive into inflammation and your specific plan. Um, why is cooking so important and, and not just what we eat, but how we eat, eating together, mm. cooking, what's the impact that that and also, you know, being mindful about our eating, not like grabbing a cheeseburger as we're driving to work. Food pleasure is a form of nourishment. Pleasure is a form of nourishment. And that's, that's one big thing that, I mean, I have a whole chapter devoted to pleasure and food pleasure. And so what's interesting about that too, is there's an entire field called neurogastronomy, which is well known to chefs, right? Because they make their livelihood off of making food as delicious as possible. And that whole experience, the music and, you know, everybody putting a plate down at the same time and the smells and that kind of thing, the shapes of the plates. And so a lot of that pleasure research is about how to increase your um, food pleasure without necessarily changing what you eat. And so one of the most interesting things is the, the studies that um, when people eat with disposable cut cutlery and then they eat the same meal with heavy cutlery, they will always rate 
the heavy cutlery meal as significantly more delicious than the exact same meal eaten with disposable cutlery. I mean, there are a million reasons not to use disposable cutlery, but this is a really big one for me is that you'll actually enjoy your food more if you have good, heavy quality cutlery. And there are other things with that, that um, if, you, if you light a pear scented candle, people who are offered a chocolate dessert or a fruit dessert are more likely to choose the fruit dessert and, and more likely to enjoy that. If you are drinking a glass of whiskey and that you have um, sounds piped in of birds chirping and a lawnmower, it will taste grassier. If you have sounds piped <laughs> in with a crackling fire, it will taste smokier. Exact same whiskey, exact same person, right? And so all of those things come into play, all of our senses. And those same things that our senses are bringing in are also the things that create emotion in us. So it's all this like, I call it a Mobius strip, one of those strips that's, it's a circle, but it has no beginning and no end. And it's all one-sided. That's how it feels with food and mood and emotions. And that's why it's so difficult to piece them all. Oh, this is the one bacteria, or this is the one food you should eat because the body is more than a container for parts. It's a holistic system and pleasure goes into that system as well. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say that pleasure is the way we thank the universe for being alive and ah, time to like love it. get shame off of our plate in terms mm -hmm. of food, cooking with other people. I, mean, I love to cook. I feel like cooking is like making love. You use all the same senses, your sense of smell, yeah. your taste, your touch. Even though my Kenny can't cook, he will chop away and he'll keep me company and we'll play music and we'll dance and we'll have a glass of wine. And it's you know the highlight of our day. And we enjoy our meal more when you again, when you're grabbing, eating plastic, using plastic cutlery, you don't incorporate the food, your body doesn't take it in the same way. So let's jump into inflammation. Can I just you say know, one thing yeah, about the ahead. sex reference? Because I, I think this is exactly right, the sex reference, because in the same way that like, sometimes you get a new toy and it's more interesting. Like the other day I was at the farmer's market and they had something called kaleette and it's a cross between kale and Brussels sprouts. And I was like, all right, I'm game for that. And it was delicious like roasted like that. It was like tender and crunchy. So I, I, I love the, I, and, and you know, our bodies use the same pleasure mechanism, whether it's sex or music or food or whatever. So I'm, I'm super into what you just said. Yeah. I literally wrote a book called food is foreplay. So um, <laughs> I, I am absolutely getting that one. I'm picking yeah, up a copy so today. That's what I was a celebrity chef in the nineties with my ex-husband. We were the cooking couple and we wrote about food and sex and romance and all of that before there's Viagra and all of this information about food and pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about inflammation because that's, we know that inflammation is really um, at the, at the heart of all dis-ease. What exactly is inflammation and what is the connection between our immune system inflammation and that emotional well-being, of course, food? Inflammation is just the activation of our immune system. So for example, you get a cut on your finger and it gets a little swollen and a little red and a little warm. That's your, that's your immune system at work. And food can also activate our immune system. So I'm going to remove from the conversation for a minute food allergies, things like celiac or dairy allergies or that kind of thing. Um, those are, that's, a, that's a different kind and, and that's person specific, right? But if you're just talking about as a general rule, Ultra processed foods are perceived by our bodies as a threat and inflammation follows. Now, that is the general rule for, for everyone. And because there are ingredients in ultra processed food that our bodies don't recognize, such as um, industrial oils are a really big one um, that, that, you know, if you buy something and you're like, oh, it just says, you know, 
corn or sunflower or whatever oil. The reason they put that in is because they use whatever's cheapest, which I get it. Food's an industry. Food is a business. They're looking to, to make money that way. But our bodies do not respond well to that. And so when that inflammation happens, our body releases inflammatory compounds into our bloodstream. And until about 30 years ago, we thought that the brain was protected from all of the toxins circulating in our blood by something called the blood-brain barrier. We thought that it was impenetrable. Now we have learned that it is semi-permeable, meaning that the blood-brain barrier is made up of these like all tightly, tightly knit together cells. So if you have a small molecule in your bloodstream, it can make their way, make its way through the cells. And those inflammatory compounds can get really little. And so they can make their way through the blood-brain barrier and affect your brain and wreak havoc on your emotional well-being. So inflammation anywhere in the body can be a, an issue for emotional well-being. But when you start eating ultra-processed foods and making it even worse, it can get even worse. And then also uh, lots of emotions like fear, anger, all also increase inflammation and also increase the emotional eating that we don't want to be doing. So how do we eat right to help us both cope with these difficult emotions and also to help us decrease inflammation? We create our own comfort foods every single day. And I did not grow up in a cooking household. I grew up in a home where food was withheld. As you said, this was this was what people knew at the time. I'm not blaming anybody, but I don't I don't have really great youth food memories. But so for example, and this is so self-serving, but I'm going to tell it anyway, when I, when my book got its first great review, it got a starred review from Publishers Weekly, which is like the holy grail. And I was very excited. I ate a piece of fish because I was like, I know in this moment, I am feeling joy. And what do I want to associate with this joy? Now, I'm not a monster. The fish was like, you know, had this really delicious, beautiful, oily tomato sauce and olives and like lots of bright green herbs and that kind of thing. So it was delicious. I wasn't just like, no, I'm going to steam a piece of fish, you know? Um, but, but we need to remember that we create those new food memories every day and not to beat ourselves up over it. If you know, you don't, because honestly, what, what we're looking for is emotional well-being. And, and if you, if you insert food shame into things or weight shame, that's not going to be good for our emotional well-being, period, hard stop. So um, I think it's just remembering that we create our own food memories every single day. And know, knowing too that we can also eat to combat inflammation, which is really, again, all about those fruits, those vegetables. Yep. Also eating the rainbow is super important because every single vegetable fruit, they have different colors because they have different plant chemicals, phytochemicals in them, and they all help to support our health and well-being in different ways. And it can help to calm your inflammatory response down and also cooking with herbs to, and spices too. things like cumin and turmeric and ginger and garlic and all of those things we know are super, super healthy. So we have a couple minutes left. Let's actually, I guess let's drill down into your four week ideal eating pattern. Cause I thought that that was tremendous and see if you can also uh, share with us some of the, the key nutrients and foods. I know we're not like, it's not a book. You're not going to find this list of superfoods, but there's some general rule, not rules, but general guidelines that you have. Can you take us through your four week plan and some of the key things sure. we want to incorporate? Yeah. And, and the acronym I use to remember it is PING, P-I-N-G, pleasure, inflammation, nutrients, and gut microbiome. Those are the oh, four nice. sort of 
Yeah, those are the four things that when I'm eating, I think to myself, well, what am I eating this for? And can I, if, it, if it's just pleasure, can I combine it with something else, right? Um, can I can I throw more vegetables in? I, I become vegetable obsessed since I wrote this book, so um, which is fantastic, which is great. Um, so, so with the four-week plan, in different weeks, you focus on different things. So for pleasure, you're going to focus on how to increase your food pleasure using some of the techniques that I said before. Um, for inflammation, you're going to focus on, as you said, um, things like fruits and vegetables, um, eating the rainbow, because, you know, the food, the vegetables have their own immune systems, right? And when we eat them, we're ingesting those vegetables immune systems to ward off like insects and, and, and too much sunlight and that kind of thing. Um, nutrients, uh, which is what you were asking about specifically, is about what, what does the food bring to you? So the, 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 sort of case study that I do in the book that has the most evidence is about omega-3 fatty acids, specifically DHA and EPA, which are found in, in fatty fish. Um, and the evidence there is astounding about how important that is um, for emotional well-being. You can actually see through the powerful microscopes that we have now, you can see how much more quickly neurons connect when you have sufficient DHA and EPA in your diet than if you don't. Um, and then the gut microbiome, that last, that last one is about what we were talking about before, fermented foods, fiber, fruits, vegetables, leafy greens, fatty fish, whole grains. A lot of the research is done around the Mediterranean diet, which I think a lot of Americans are not only familiar with, but comfortable with. Um, and, uh, so if you go that direction and also a big part of the Mediterranean diet is eating with other people and having that community and that conviviality around a meal. And I live alone part of the time. I can't eat every single meal with every single person every single day, but I make a concerted effort to have, to make sure that I don't have more than one meal a day alone. Yeah, su super um, great key takeaways from the book. And I would say something, again, I, I love about the book is that, yes, you're focusing on pleasure. And I think that's work that a lot of people have to do if we have a lot of guilt around food, which I think a lot of us are, those of us who are recovering dieters or have always focused on the scale. So give yourself, you know, permission to take time with this. You know, what I would recommend is make one or two small changes every week. So add a new fruit and vegetable, you know, every single day, try it as you were saying, go to the grocery store and eat with your eyes and say, gosh, I've never had a star fruit before or that. I think you said that, that broccolini, or I think you said it was kale and Brussels sprouts. Kale put yeah, it's so crazy. And when you roast it, because the woman said to me when I asked the farmer, how do I use this? She said, oh, well, you know, any way you use kale. And I was like, well, I guess that means I'm going to throw it in the drawer and not eat it for three weeks and then throw <laughs> it away, which of course is not true. But but I, did, I took it home and I roasted it like you do with kale, like to make kale chips. And the great thing about it is like there were little bulbs at the base of them that were really tender, like, like, like the inside of a roasted Brussels sprout. And then you get the crispiness of the leaf. It's like, I'm going to search that out from now on. Delicious. Yeah, Delicious. We'll grow, we'll, I'll see if we can grow it next year because it sounds incredibly fun. Oh, That's also so have, have fun with it. So I would say what I tell a lot 
lot of people is, you know, add one serving of fruits and vegetables to all your meals and snacks. So if you're, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon is the time, I don't know if you talk about in the book, but we have also circadian rhythms, both in terms of when we eat as well as things like sunlight and sleep and things like that. So we, we generally have a dip in our energy level around three. A lot of times people get hungry, tell people, you know, carry a apple in your bag, a small handful of nuts. I would say, so make one or two changes every single week, get support. It really starts in your grocery store, start going to things like farmer's markets so you can discover sort of new fun things. And also, and then I talked about this on a, on a recent show as well, get friendly with fat. I know when I became a dietitian, I don't know if you remember the nineties, I think you were talking about snack wells and entomins. It was all like 10% fat. And I think we went totally off the deep end with this was like, you can eat as much carbohydrate as you want. And so we were eating all of this. And I was, remember even recommending this to my patients, telling them that you could eat sweet cookies and cakes as long as they were fat free. And what ended up happening is everybody's triglycerides went way up. Nobody was losing any weight. That's totally bunk. Now we really know that the right fats, not the fats you talked about earlier, the ones that are the processed oils, and of course, corn oil, super inexpensive, those processed fats are, are awful for you. But the nuts, the seeds, I use olive and avocado oil primarily for my cooking. And I also just eat a ton of fat. Like I am, I eat much less carbohydrates and so women who are listening, thinking about, you know, menopause and menopause awake gun. I would say that the thing that works for my clients is really to, again, forget about the scale and weight loss to start with focusing on healthy eating patterns, but give yourself permission to enjoy fat again. I think we have lost um, that. We're so, we've gotten so scared because when you're counting calories, of course, a gram of fat has double nine calories per gram Um of fat versus only four for carbohydrates and protein. So I remember like telling everybody to like cut out all the fats, reintroduce fat. So nuts, seeds, you know, flax seeds are great. Chia seeds, almonds, Brazil nuts, the fatty fish, you recommend having fatty fish twice a week. And I would say, you know, where you don't go whole, whole crazy about supplementation, but certainly um, if you're not getting that fish in, having an omega-3 fatty acid supplement in your diet is a good idea. Yeah, I actually, I mean, guilty as charged. I, I take an omega-3 um, supplement when I know that I'm going to be in a place where I won't be able to get a lot of like really high quality fresh fish, but also canned tuna is great. Canned salmon is great. Like tinned fish needs to have a comeback. And that's like one of the great things to me about writing this book is that I have a science and public health background, but I am a food writer and fat is flavor. I mean, the idea that you would try to be a food writer without eating fat is, um, is challenging, <laughs> is challenging. And so I really, um, I, I support everything you just said about the, the importance of fat and, um, you know, the health supporting fats. And, and it's not, it's not like olive oil tastes so much worse than, you know, industrially, expressed cottonseed oil. It's not like, oh, I'm making such a big, you know, it, it's, it's delicious. It's better. It's better tasting. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's just about how our food system is right now. Yeah. And also fat increases satiety. So it slows down how quickly food goes through your system. It tastes, as you said, really good. And it also increases bioavailability. 
lots of nutrients that we find in our plant foods are more easily absorbed. So when I make my kale salad, because we still have tons of kale in the backyard, um, you know, we make it really, we, we grind it up. We, we uh, really uh, either saute it with olive oil or we make a dressing and I use a ton, a ton of fat. Um, and also I just have to say too, there are some great recipes in the book. Huh. Tell us about some of your favorites. I want to try your, your, uh, I think it was a, um, sheet pan chicken. I love sheet pan cooking. So oh, easy to do. Yeah. So great to do for batch cooking. So if you are single or you are empty nesting, what I do is I make huge meals and we do actually all my, my August, September, and even in October is spent putting up all of this um, produce that Kenny grows, but, um, tell us about some of the recipes. So I um, have been developing recipes for years for the Washington Post and before that for other organizations. And I felt that there needed to be um, very simple, very memorable. So if you're in the grocery store, it's like, oh yeah, what did that have in it? Uh, I wanna make that tonight. And it's just like a few ingredients so you can remember what they are. Um, very simple recipes uh, that really work. And it was that was critical to me because I don't think I don't think you have to cook 34, I don't think you have to cook four hour meals to really appreciate the food. And I actually think if you're just assembling something, I mean, if you pass by somebody on the street and they have a great outfit on and you're like, wow, great outfit, that's a compliment. You know, if you're somebody who, who who gets really good food and then like puts them together on a board or a plate and then brings people over and serve, that, that's a skill. And, and I feel like we're cook shaming people who, who are just sort of like, you know what, I'm too tired to cook or I'm too stressed to cook, or I don't find that cooking is relaxing. I mean, there's no reason for you to spend four hours in the, in the kitchen unless, you know, you're getting some sort of a benefit from it. So I, those recipes, I tried to keep very simple. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that people need to, I think, learn to cook. I mean, I think learning to cook, knowing how to cook is like learning to read. As you said, it is a skill. Yeah. And I usually tell people, okay, just if you don't know much about cooking, start with one thing, just decide, okay, today I'm going to make your sheet pan chicken. Or I'm going to learn how to roast a chicken and your skills will increase. Anybody can learn to cook. It's not rocket science. And I don't know, it's, it's my favorite thing to do. It's totally in my genius zone. There's nothing I like better at the end of the day than to like last night I made an amazing, um, huge mushroom soup. I had leeks mm. that I had bought. We had just gone to Quebec city and we went to the Costco on the way home and they had these big bags of leeks and they were going. So I sort of made this in between sort of a Japanese miso soup and a French onion soup. And then we had mm. some, uh, wonderful, uh, Costco miso cod. So I just, I just roasted the cod in the oven, nothing to do. Just put it on, a, put it on a pan and cook for 22 minutes at 400. And then I had this delicious soup that took me, you know, about 15 minutes to chop everything up and add some water to it. And it was just such a beautiful way to spend time together with great for my microbiome as well. And as well as just incredibly pleasurable. I think if we brought more pleasure back and spent more time cooking, we wouldn't be running for all of the fast food. We're looking for this immediate gratification. I think about fast food a lot, like watching crappy TV, right? We watch it and we're filled. So our time is filled, but we feel so empty. Yeah. And it's interesting because we always try to teach our children about delayed gratification and waiting for the real thing and that kind of thing. And then we just like feed them whatever, um, which as I said, I'm a mother. I understand the necessity of that sometimes. Um, but when people tell me, oh, you're a food writer, I wish I could cook, I can't cook. And I'm like, look, 
If you're here today, that means your ancestors cooked. It's in your DNA. If your ancestors couldn't cook, you would they would have starved to death and you wouldn't be here. So I really do believe that everyone can cook and there's a cooking style for everyone that is a quote unquote legitimate cooking style because I think a lot of our expectations about home cooking have been distorted from the past 20 years of food television. And I've been on Food Network. I mean, I'm, I'm a culprit as well, but... Um, but I, I really hope that people can get back to just sort of authentically having people in their home and not needing to do like a gourmet meal every time you have people over, because that is exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. We are almost out of time. So I want to let people know that the book is Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. And before we go, I'm wondering, Mary Beth, how are you rocking your midlife? And what's next for you? Oh my gosh, I love this question. Um, 30 I, seconds uh, or less. <laughs> oh my God. Um, uh, how am I rocking my midlife? Oh, no. oh um, you are, you, you are just I mean, like I what published, you're doing right I now. Published a book. Like, I, mean, I published my first book at 50 years old. I feel good about that. That's amazing. And you are such an incredible inspiration. Um, I recommend get the book. We didn't talk what about what hanger is, but if you are experiencing that hungry and angry thing, you will learn so much. You'll learn more about comfort food. It is an, a fascinating, wonderful read that I will say could really change your life. So get out there, get the book and get in the kitchen and have some fun. Thank you so much for watching. If you want to reach out and connect with me, it's Dr. Ellen Albertson. I am the midlifewhisperer.com. That's the midlifewhisperer.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Mary Beth, for being here. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Rock Your Midlife. We hope this episode has helped you get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week and go rock your midlife.